0: Hey guys, I'm Nick.
1: And I'm Eugene.
0: Welcome to Papercut. This week, we'll be talking about The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. The story goes as such. A young, handsome Dorian Gray receives a portrait of himself from a friend. He soon learns that the portrait is blessed. As a result, Dorian Gray can't grow old or ugly. The effects of time and the strain of evil are taken out on the portrait instead of him. Parading as a young man for the rest of his life, trouble finds him as his acts of hedonism catch up with him. First published in 1890, the book remains a classic today among Oscar Wilde fans. At the time, some of the content in the book was so scandalous that it wasn't published until 2011, the uncensored script, and yet the censored version survived the test of time. But we'll talk about that in a bit. So let's start off our thoughts eugene you read this quite recently what did you think
1: well what can i say this book has got a lot of quotes in it just a lot of ideas for you to digest and actually the plot is secondary so lord henry which is the guy who sort of guides dorian gray's thoughts in the book to in my opinion he is the main character It's a lot of his ideas that influenced Dorian Gray's uh, actions. And to be honest, Oscar Wilde is definitely high on something when he wrote this. Because it's one of those things where you know that Lord Henry is a very cynical person, but you can't help but agreeing with a lot of his quotes. And then you, you, you ask yourself, why am I agreeing with those quotes? But it does make you think. And even though the plot, I would say, is subpar, the ideas in there really, really does yeah, open your eyes to different ways, different attitudes to life. But we can get into that later.
0: Uh, it's interesting that you mentioned that, actually, because I, I think I agree with you. The plot itself is... Well, it's not the first time I've heard of this sort of plot, this idea of someone being very hedonistic, Living life without consequences. Personally, I think you, I think you have it right in saying that Lord Henry's ideas were sort of the main thing about this book. I felt like this book was mainly just a platform for Oscar Wilde to narrate certain ideas that, in my mind, honestly, did not drive the plot forward very much.
1: Yeah, definitely, definitely. <laughs> it's
0: one of the. It's one of those books where someone says, "I'm writing this because I can." And in between, he sprinkles something resembling a story. So, okay, I'm going to say it first. Would I recommend it only if you want to quote Oscar Wilde like some sort of pretentious <laughs> It's a bit, a bit of a slug to read through, and luckily it wasn't that long. So if you're reading for the plot, I'd say just watch the movie. Oh, there's a movie? Yeah, there's a really old movie. Uh, in that like, well, was black and white old, and then there's a more recent one.
1: Oh right, yeah, I see.
0: Yeah, it, I've actually never watched either, but
1: I wonder how well they captured um, the quotes in there. But no, I agree. Um, it's definitely a you read it to impress. Well, yeah, you read it to think and impress, I guess. But the plot itself, not worth the read.
0: We can talk about a few of the ideas in the book actually. And I think you wanted to introduce the central themes of the book.
1: Well, the central theme of the book is basically living without consequences. His Dorian Gray, he can basically go out, drink all he wants, does everything he wants. And all of the strain that it puts on him, be it mental, be it physical, it all goes to the portrait. So in a sense, you can feel all the pleasure, but we, you don't need to feel the pain that's consequential.
0: Yeah, I think that sounds about right. So a life just of pure excess and hedonism, where he's just pursuing what feels pleasurable to him at all times.
1: But what do you think about this kind of life, Nick? Would you think it's something that
0: that's as attractive as it looks on paper? This one I have proper Experience in this one. So, we were, I was a student once, you know, there were weeks on end where I had idle time and I could have done anything I wanted at that time, okay? So, at that time, um, I had a bit of money saved, so money wasn't an issue. It's more like, do I want to do something? And one of the most easily accessible things to do in our generation is to binge Netflix and to play a lot of video games and well, other unsanitary things I don't want to talk about. Um, So, and I can tell you right now that it's fun for maybe a day or two. And after a while, it just becomes boring and painful. There's something called the the pain pleasure principle. So it's by Sigmund Freud. And the central idea behind that is that we will do everything to avoid pain and to gear ourselves to its pleasure. The way I look at it is I've actually read subsequent books after that that suggest that by pursuing endless pleasure, you, you just end up finding pain. And paradoxically, by pursuing what you perceive as pain, you find pleasure from it afterwards as lasting happiness. Not just pleasure, but lasting happiness. I'm going to emphasize that point. Personally, could I live the way Dorian Gray lived? Once again, maybe for two days, but no more. I don't want that life.
1: Interesting. I think I agree with that as well. Because, in my opinion, the whole concept of pleasure and pain are two opposite sides of a spectrum. But the catch is they can't exist without each other. So it's meaningless to say, I will have a life full of pleasure without pain. But because then the pain won't exist in your life and your perception of what's pleasure will shift. Uh, the whole concept of utopia or like heaven is very hard for it to come to fruition Mm. because of the exact same um the exact same principle that i just described you can't have everyone being happy
0: i think like i think you touched on that point Mm -hmm. right it's very much a baseline of how you feel so like pain and pleasure like you say are on a spectrum and if you just have quote unquote pleasure every day your baseline of what you require just gets higher and higher and higher so you might this thing might be pleasurable one day but the next day it might not be so it's very much like a drug in that sense
1: yeah because i because i know the whole pleasure thing is from dopamine right and you can basically just get used to the dopamine and you won't feel anything anymore Precisely. And I definitely had the experience where I've also had times where money wasn't an issue And I could have done all the things that you've, well, everything in the world And all I did was the Netflix and the video games and the other stuff
0: <laughs> and This is why as well, I don't know about you I've, I've heard stories of people uh, binging Netflix on end and binging whole series in like a day or two And I personally, I can't do that anymore i can i can't i can sit for like maybe an episode max or a movie max and then i just have to do something else just to move around i yeah, can't it, actually binge
1: the thing is that like if you binge it it takes away the value of the whole escapism because you're not escaping from anything anymore once you're doing it full time it becomes the thing you want to escape from Ooh. Ooh.
0: see I, I don't know if i necessarily agree with that i feel like with the whole point like the whole point of binging netflix is so that you have that entire span of time just in pure escape because you're already in the zone you in let's say if you're watching breaking Bad, you're invested already like the next scene boom 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 it's happening like that and you're just consuming it in one big go rather than like chunking it up and that works with certain mediums but not necessarily like binging netflix so for example if you've ever read game of thrones that was a hard book to read in many sittings i found it much easier just to read it in big bursts rather than Ten pages, ten pages, ten pages. If that makes sense.
1: Yeah, I see. I see your point.
0: I mean, back to <laughs> yeah, yeah, Dorian yeah. Gray. There's a, an interesting quote in the book, and it comes towards the end when Dorian Gray basically learns about the consequence of a life full of excess, and he says, "Each of us has heaven and hell in him." This quote itself. I mean, we're going to get into quotes because it is an Oscar Wilde book, but here we go. This quote itself is not unique to Oscar Wilde, I think. I think you can find similar texts in other uh, Christian texts and like Buddhist texts as well. Like the idea that everyone has good and evil inside of him, pain and pleasure as well. Nothing's ever really like black or white, but somewhere in between, you know. And to some extent, I can see that he's trying to reconcile these two ideas inside of him and he's trying to internalize it because after living a life of excess it's for so long it's hard for him to come to this come to terms with this so it's interesting character development in that end but personally i think it came a bit too late though it does feed into the final parts of the book
1: i don't want to spoil it you feel like his final revelation could have came a lot earlier
0: i think it's a personal thing so I'm very much a person who likes stories of redemption. If a character starts off really bad or does really awful things in the beginning, I really like stories where there are steps to show how this person's improved, Subs he realises he's done something wrong, he needs to make a change in it. And I like those stories where you you see the person improving, you see the character developing better human skills as opposed to just like, okay, this is it, it's over now, blah. Oh, ah. I
1: see. I get what you mean. Because otherwise it will just become like a story of a bad guy
0: doing bad things. Doing
1: bad things and then like getting his consequence. Yeah, I I do see your point because if you have a story of redemption, then it's more inspirational in a way. Exactly. It's more it's more of like a how you can be a better person book. It's more of a how someone who may not necessarily have the best moral instincts at the start Mm. could develop from his experiences, from his interactions with other people, from his conversations with other with other individuals, and then sort of come up with like a better moral framework with his life, right?
0: I don't know. I think it it depends on the reader. Like stories of redemption resonate with me, but it might not necessarily resonate with other people
1: yeah i guess so because actually for me i i don't really mind either way because i feel like while story of redemptions are good i also think the stories where the bad guy gets his end of the stick actually no let, let me put it this way sometimes the bad guy is just bad in those cases having him receive the end of the stick for me it's like a personally satisfying experience to see sort of actual bad morality getting punished in my opinion mm-hmm. what bad morality is getting punished i also feel like yeah because those things happen in real life so if you have too much sort of stories of redemption it makes you think that people can be better than they are in my opinion some people are just too far gone to be saved Okay. good to have a, both sides of the story i feel so both sides of the spectrum redemption and punishment
0: i guess like in that sense both of them, they're kind of equal to you. They're not. You don't have like a preference over one or the other. Yeah,
1: I don't. I don't. Okay, fair enough. Like at this instant, anyway. But I feel like my opinion could change. So perhaps, maybe in the future, there will be. I will find like a
0: more soft spot for redemption stories, and I'll agree with you eventually. Eventually. <laughs> All right. Um. Here's another interesting idea. So I mentioned earlier how. The original uncensored script only came out to the public in 2011. That is more than a hundred years after its original publication in 1890. That is crazy. Oscar Wilde is known for dabbling in taboo topics like sexual promiscuity, homosexuality, what have you back in the day. So the book still sold well in the English-speaking world, but you can imagine that the critics weren't very happy with it, and even W.H. Smith, very large branch of booksellers in the UK, refused to sell it. I mentioned earlier how it felt like Oscar really didn't care about the story of the book, and he actually fully admitted that he wrote the book purely for his own pleasure.
1: No, I definitely agree. You can tell from the book he was saying what comes to mind straight away. and He's just dropping them down, like literally just dropping them down as they come. But do you know what, which bits were censored?
0: I'm not too sure, though people have pointed it out. But I think it was, like I said, those parts that alluded to sexual promiscuity or homosexuality, overt homosexuality. So I can't actually tell you. I actually don't know which version I've read. I don't know if it was pre-2011 or post-2011.
1: Okay. Because I don't remember that many scenes from that. The version that I read. So maybe I read the censored version. Which means that there's more reading to do. Oh no. <laughs> oh no, I cannot do
0: this again. I don't have it in me. I don't no. like this book enough. <laughs> uh, okay, I think we'll head to the quotes in a bit. Because there's a lot to cover there. But I just want to leave the listeners with one last piece of trivia. So in August 1889, J.M. Stoddart, editor of a famous publisher, dined with Oscar Wilde and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle of the Sherlock Holmes series in the Langham Hotel in London. It was then that Stoddart commissioned novellas from both of them, and Conan Doyle instantly submitted The Sign of the Four. Wilde was a bit slower, but he eventually gave The Picture of Dorian Gray for publishing. It was originally published as a series in the papers so it wasn't intended to be a book until later but I found it quite cool like imagine a famous editor two classic literary gods just all in all on one table and there and then they were asked to produce some of their greatest works I, I find that quite cool and you hear stories like this all the time I think there's a hotel somewhere where in Paris I believe and like F. Scott Fitzgerald and I think Ernest Hemingway used to just congregate there and have a chat. Mm. I think that's how the story goes anyway. Damn,
1: that's pretty cool. And like it's just just how different those two books turn out to be.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like I I mean you mean these two books like Sign
1: of Four and Picture of Dorian Gray.
0: Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I think Oscar Wilde is more famous as a playwright and Arthur Conan Doyle as a, as an author for books. So you have that element to look at as well, so you can imagine that they'd be quite different.
1: I guess so. I'm also trying to, I'm also trying to envision how the picture of Dorian Gray would work in a series publication.
0: That's a good question. Qual- I actually do. I can't. I can't imagine that. Film. Yeah, I right. read it in one go. Yeah, and it's not the first book that that's done this. Like, if you've ever read things like um, a few Sherlock Holmes series, *Accounts of Monte Cristo*, I think the Miserables* as well. I think they were all originally like series and newspapers and you'd have to actually read it bit by but those bit. were
1: actual stories right i guess because sign of four was uh, there's a very well-defined plot line so i'm just thinking how that would work for something like picture of dorian Gray*, where it's more about ranting than about <laughs> writing
0: <laughs> i should i don't know really i think it's one of those things but we have to scroll through the archives to find it but i don't know if i have the patience for no <laughs> i don't think i
1: do either just just thought experiment
0: <laughs> let's get to the creme de la creme of this whole thing so we can talk about quotes we like now from the book because there are a lot of them and so if you're happy with it i'll start there's a there's a part where lord henry goes nowadays people know the price of everything and the value of nothing so the popular one is about cynics, knowing the price of everything and the value of nothing. That one came a lot later from the play called Lady Windermere's Fan. So it's not really this one, but you see this all the time when authors copy themselves. And, uh, okay. and He's definitely not the first one to do this, but the famous one comes from the other one, but you can see the makings of it here. And I mentioned it mainly because it's a famous quote. It's a bit of juvenile as well in that People always think, oh, yeah, nowadays everything's gotten worse, you know. The, the youth are now more depraved, than that, more de- morally deprived than ever. They're more disrespectful, blah, blah, blah. You always hear that stuff from old, people of the older generation. And I definitely feel that he had something like that here.
1: Okay. Can you, can you sort of elaborate a little bit on that? Because I don't feel like I quite follow how sort of knowing the price of everything and value of nothing, how does that feed into the whole narrative of sort of the old complaining about the young
0: i think at the time the book was written you could if you were rich get pretty much everything you needed if you wanted cake no problem if you wanted food no problem and so you know the price of it all you had to do was pay for a cake pay for some food and you know you knew how much it costed you but you might not necessarily see the value put into it you might not necessarily see the slaves in in the sugar plantations chopping those sugar canes down to make sugar you might not see people gathering your flour you might not actually see the farmers at work you might not see the bakers behind sweating and putting things in ovens and just working really hard to make all this happen so you know the price of it you just don't appreciate the, the inner workings of it and how things actually came to be I think that's what he was trying to get at here, that we weren't being very appreciative of things that were happening. What do you think?
1: I do agree with the fact that nowadays we just sort of go to the shop and we just buy something, but we don't really think about how that thing came in, came to be, right? Mm. Uh, to me, when I, when I read this quote, I actually didn't think that deep into it. So my initial thought about this quote was just the most face value of I pay for something and that's it Mm -hmm. I don't care about what it does I pay for it because I can I have the money to it's a very modern interpretation of the quote because obviously beforehand like people couldn't just afford stuff that we can now but I'm trying to think whether I can still interpret it like this because remember the setting here if i'm correct me if i'm wrong they're said during like a dinner with a lot of like upper class people yeah right so they would be in our position where they can afford a lot of stuff in society even more so back then because of how differently wealth is spread so yeah that was my interpretation of the quote
0: fair enough i guess this one will leave it to the readers then you yeah know. yeah for sure all right What you have the quote you want to share
1: Um, Yeah, so one of the quotes that I feel resonated with me was Children begin by loving their parents As they grow older, they judge them Sometimes they forgive them Yeah. So this quote, I feel captures a lot of modern day family feud, generational gap issues You see it all the time, you know Especially us, Nick, because mm-hmm. we we are raised by Asian traditions, mm-hmm. but we have been educated in a more westernized education system. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we have more sort of west Western values, mm-hmm. so we feel like clashes. I definitely feel clashes mm-hmm. with my family when it comes to well, multiple issues, but like say domestic issues, just something as simple as um giving money to your family in the west they don't do that whereas like in 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 the east in in asia it's mandatory basically to give money to your family and although it's not something that i necessarily agree with in principle i respect that because of my heritage because i still need to respect my family because they need they want me to do it i'll do it But you can see how this can escalate into like a bigger issue. If it's something that I have a more sort of firmly, firmer moral stand ground on. So, for example, say if I was gay and my family is like, "Oh no, what do you mean you're gay? We don't believe in that," (laughs) right?
0: Just pray it away. Pray the gay. Yeah, exactly, exactly. (laughs) So
1: a lot of this is due to generational gap It's a lot of a lot of it's due to how they grew up in their time which shaped their moral framework and how it differs to ours when we grew up in our time and how we shape our moral framework and that's like a big thing to me and what's the most powerful thing about this quote is actually the end bit when it says sometimes they forgive them it just shows how it just shows how fundamental the differences can get. Because mm-hmm. I know sometimes that when I disagree with my parents, I disagree it to such a level that in my mind, it dehumanizes them mm-hmm. at some, because I was, because I just think, how can you not think like this? Like, how can a human being not have like this basic moral principle? Mm-hmm you realise that they probably think the same thing about you. And this is, again, just due to the fact that you are brought up in different times. It's the idea that sometimes they forgive them. And the flip side of it is sometimes they don't forgive them. Yeah. And you can see how a lot of those, unfortunately, they get carried to the grave and it's still not sorted out. So... Yeah, that's something that resonated a lot with me.
0: Uh, Don't get me wrong. I think the quote itself is written very well. The way I would interpret it, I don't know if I necessarily would go the way you went. Though I do agree with the points you've made. That wasn't my initial instinct when I first read the quote. So when I first read the quote, I think it brought back this other... There's another quote in another book that goes along the lines of when you're young you see yourself as luke skywalker but when you grow older you find out you're actually more darth vader
1: <laughs> i wonder what book that is
0: i uh, know i'll tell you that it's actually not star wars but anyway it's interesting that you mentioned that this quote because the way i viewed this is that when you're young you know you love your parents hopefully for uh, if you're lucky enough you love your parents and you know you see them for what they are. You don't see them for what they are, sorry. You just see them as parents. Sometimes they might be harsh on you. They do they ask you to do things you don't want to do. But as you grow older, you empathize with them. You mature a bit more and suddenly maybe one day when you have your own kids, you find that your style of parenting is actually very similar to your own parents' style of uh, of parenting. And you find that it's actually a cycle and it's just repeated itself. To me that's what I got from it idea of generational differences I think does come into play a bit as in when you look into the details but at high level that's how I would look at it
1: when we grow up we will do all the things that we well we do all the things that our parents did
0: essentially yeah like we will have our own ideas and our kids whatever will have their own ideas as well and they're going to feel the exact same way and all of a sudden they're going to think oh wow why can't my dad see this why can't my mom see this and all of a sudden
1: we are the bad guys and all of a
0: sudden we're the bad guys
1: and we're like oh now we get it now you get it so that's why i'm never gonna have kids down uh, i'm gonna have being a bad guy oh, right? God. oh man 300 <laughs> iq <laughs>
0: all right eugene so i think you have one more quote you wanted to share with us
1: yeah so this one in my opinion is one of the one of the best quotes in a in a book is something that i sort of like to follow and it goes something like this shallow sorrows and shallow loves live on the loves and sorrows that are great are destroyed by their own plentitude my interpretation of it is while it can be applied to relationships i feel like you can also apply it to in general your attitude to life it's basically a very posh way of saying don't put all your eggs in one basket don't feel too passionate about something because If it doesn't work out you know you won't know what to do you won't you lose direction in life and that's scary that's really scary i had that when you know i did physics and then it didn't work out so i'm like oh no what do i do now and that was really terrifying that was a very terrifying experience and to me i just feel like to not care as much about something i'm not saying don't care about it completely but to succeed in something you shouldn't care too much because it gives you too much pressure and if it gives you too much pressure there's more chance of you failing in it
0: it's paradoxical right i actually heard from one of those youtube video inspirational videos this guy saying passion is bullshit and he just outright said that and he said if you just follow passion, it will burn out and you will not find anything. The thing that you should focus on is discipline. Yeah, no, completely, completely. And so you might not enjoy every day of what you do, but if you have the discipline to at least follow through with it, that will be the defining factor.
1: It's never about, I guess, it's never about passion. It's it's what they put in films because discipline is not, you know, it's not beautiful. It's not, It's not attractive, right? Discipline. But passion is attractive. Yeah. And they put all of it in films, and I guess a lot of us are romanticized about. Oh no, I'll find my calling, I'll find my passion. But really, what you need to find is discipline, because once you have discipline, you can do a lot of stuff, including what you feel more passionate
0: about. Um, I think you touched on it as well earlier about how this one goes into relationships, because I guess when you mentioned it, that was the first thing that came into my mind. So, you've heard many cases of like love at first sight and everything, but. What often happens is if it's just love at first sight and nothing else, you find that it just dies. And ironically enough, those relationships that start off as simple things tend to blossom into something lasting. So it's not a very good example, but you do hear cases of it in things like arranged marriages, where two people don't really know each other that well, slowly start to like each other over time. And that love actually becomes real over time, and it it spans for the rest of their lives. And I know this is not me advocating arranged <laughs> marriages or anything. Like I don't think it really works well for today's society. But that was the first thing that came into my mind. So that's what, that's what I took away from this quote.
1: That's why a lot of um lasting relationships actually they start off not being love at first sight, but rather being like classmates or like being um um colleagues or or just like friends right because you get to know them and then you get to like them not the other way around
0: i think there's a lot of sense to that like some people would tell you otherwise and of course we are not i'm not a love expert so if you if you disagree with me on this then fair enough but i do think that you have to build a lasting relationship on something Something mutual. You can't just build it on an emotion. Yeah. You know? This actually
1: reminds me of a quote from uh Bojack Horseman.
0: Oh, I love that show.
1: You remember um uh the owl? Yeah. When she broke up with Bojack.
0: Well, spoilers, but okay.
1: Um, she was like, What happened? And then Bojack said, Same thing that happens with everyone else. You knew me, you fell in love with me, and you actually got to know me. Well, on that note, um I think it's about time we uh, say goodbye for this week, Nick.
0: Yep, I agree. I have nothing more to add but this one. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of Papercut. I'm Nick.
1: And I'm Eugene. Peace. Out.